But eschatological judgment or final judgment is not the only kind of judgment that we see in Scripture. We also see God bringing what we could call temporal judgments or current judgments. Current wrath as opposed to final wrath within our world responding to a particular culture's widespread sinfulness in specific ways. We know the familiar passage in Romans chapter 1, it is an explanation of this kind of temporal, current response of God in judgment to a culture's sinfulness. For example, you can look there or you can just listen. Verses 18 through 20 in Romans 1 reveals something specific about God and his character in the created world when the judgment of God comes. For example, verse 18 of Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because, listen to this carefully, that which is known about God is evident within them. Because God made it evident to them. How did God make himself evident to the world? Well, verse 20 of Romans 1 tells us, because since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So what has God done? He's revealed his self, himself, his character, his attributes through all the things that he has made and everyone in the world can see those things. They're not hidden from anyone. It's a universal kind of revelation of what God is like and in Romans 1 verse 21 you see the response of an unbelieving culture to everything that God has revealed to the world about himself it says even though they knew God and how did they know God they could see him in the world they knew what he was like it doesn't take any you know rocket science to know we've got this complex world there there has to be someone greater than us there has to be an intelligence beyond us so they knew God but they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened and professing to be wise they became fools how did that happen how do you see people who think they're wise showing themselves to be foolish in regard to the attributes of God? It says, well, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So looking at the created world that should tell you what God is like, they look at the created world and make gods of the created world. And it shows a foolishness and a darkened and a hardened heart. In Romans 1.25 it says, they exchanged the truth of God that we see in the creation for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is common in our world. It's common in our world to look at what the world has to offer and its complexity and its design and its purpose and rather than worshiping God, we turn to worship self, we turn to worship idols that we make in the world and assign them to the attributes that are clearly displayed that should point us to God, we make gods up. And what is God's response? Well, Romans 1 tells us. In verse 24 of Romans 1, therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. What does that mean? What they wanted in their heart, he enslaved them to. He let their hearts control them. Their hearts were as if hardened so that they could not see and understand. Romans 1.26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. So passions instilled in the human heart that should be expressed in God-centered ways that show us the glory of God, help us to experience the glory of God. Now, because we've been given over in our sinfulness to a hardened heart, we express those passions in degrading sinful ways. Romans 1.28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, 
God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. I don't have to go through the newspaper to show you how this is expressed today, do I? You see it. We talk about it. We talk about it in our casual conversation with one another. We talk about it all of the time. We see this. We experience this kind of expression of the temporal wrath of God as he's giving people over. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. It's illogical. We, we look at this regularly. It's like the world has lost its mind, right? They have. That's what the text says. He gave them over to a mind that can't think straight that's an explanation of what cultural or current or temporal judgment of God looks like and all of that sets up the scene for the final judgment to come when he comes in his wrath like we've been studying in second Thessalonians just builds that reservoir of God's wrath if you want to see a powerful example of how that and what that kind of temporal judgment of God looks like you read about the plagues in the book of Exodus. In fact, as you study through the plagues that will begin today, you, you kind of wonder, did Paul in Romans 1 have Exodus 7 through 14 in mind when he wrote it? Because it is an example of everything that Paul describes in Romans 1 as God unveils his temporal current displays of wrath towards cultural sin. So what we're going to look at in Exodus 7 and the following chapters and really through the rest of the summer, it's going to be such an encouraging summer, we're going to look at the judgments of God I know it'll warm your heart. Maybe it'll convert some people. We're going to see the judgments of God. What do the judgments of God reveal? It's very simple. It's, it's the same thing that God has been trying to reveal in the creation. When he attacks our idols, he's revealing a particular attribute of his own nature to contrast himself with what we tend to worship. He contrasts himself with what we worship by attacking what we worship. May even give us over to what our heart desires because we will not respond to his call to repent. So we're going to see the judgments of God and they do reveal his character which in Exodus 7 and following, Egypt clearly knew about the character of God. And we know that they knew about the character of God, like Romans says, because they had created a plethora of gods att attached to all kinds of created things in the world. Snakes, rivers, cattle, etc. They worshipped the created world in place of the God who was showing himself. And so when God comes to attack those gods, he contrasts himself and his divine attributes with what they were worshiping as a substitute to God. And we'll see particular, specific, unbelieving responses to God's judgments. They should warn us, they should instruct us, they should help us. And we should expect that we should see the character of God in his judgments. After all, we said a number of weeks ago when we started studying the book of Exodus that the first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus are answering the question, who is God? Who is God? Now the first 12 chapters of these first 18 answer that question, God is a deliverer. He's a deliverer and that's what we see in the first 12 chapters. He's delivering his people and he's now, we're pivoting to this point where he's delivering his people through judgments and in those judgments we begin to see the attributes of God, the nature of God and responses to the attributes of God. What we need to remember is that these plagues that we'll talk about 
They are all a response to the opening question from Pharaoh that we rehearsed back in chapter 5. You remember when Moses made his initial foray into the throne room of Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. And what was Pharaoh's response? Who, Exodus 5.2, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Who is this God that I should actually have to obey what he commands me? Every plague answers that question. And it answers that question. Every plague attacks an Egyptian god and contrasts it with some specific attribute of God to show that God is greater than all the gods of Egypt. And we know this to be the case because the text of the Bible explicitly tells us that the plagues were an attack on the Egyptian gods. It's said specifically that in Exodus 12, 12, but also there's a comment on it in Numbers chapter 33, verse 4, that says, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them, listen to this, the Lord had also executed judgments on their gods. The judgments were an attack on the gods of Egypt. In the attack, it was a display of the attributes of God contrasted with those other gods that were attached to all kinds of natural things in the world. Those natural things in the world should have pointed to the true God. That's what we're going to see over the next number of weeks. And Exodus 7 really begins us in this journey of unveiling the judgments of God on Egypt and revealing specific characteristics of God that expose specific idolatries in Egypt. So what is it that the judgments of God actually reveal? What do they reveal about his character? What do the judgments of God reveal about the character of God? And even what do they reveal about unbelieving responses and believing responses to the judgments of God? Chapter 7 is the opening of the Egyptian judgments. And they show us different characteristics of God that expose sinful heart responses. And we'll even see what a believing heart looks like. So what are these characteristics of God? Let's make them plain and simple. You'll see them. They're not new concepts to you if you've been around here for a while. If you're new to the church, you might not understand these concepts, but they're critical. They're critical in understanding who the true God really is. The first characteristic we see displayed in the judgments of God is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. What do we mean by sovereignty? Well, the typical definition of sovereignty means that God does whatever he chooses to do. That's what sovereignty is. He does what he decides to do. He's, the, the actions of God are not hindered by any human instinct or human decision or human action. God is sovereign. His will overrules and rules over all things. And sovereignty doesn't just mean that God does whatever he wants to do. It also implies that God, because of who he is, has the right to do whatever he desires to do. He's sovereign. Being sovereign, being a king, being the utmost king, having the right to do all that he desires to do is inherent in who he is as the divine, one true living God. He's sovereign. Now we'll see that in the first seven verses because the first seven verses are an announcement to Moses of what God is going to do throughout the plagues. And by the way, what Sam read for you in the first seven verses, this is not new revelation to Moses. In fact, you, you read through this and you think, I think we've heard this before, haven't we? We have. He's simply reiterating again to Moses. Not new revelation, it's reiterated revelation. He's telling Moses what he's already told him. He told him this back in chapter 3, verse 18 exactly what was going to happen. So why does God need to say it again? Well, if you remember at the end of chapter six, Moses had brought this whole thing up again that I'm not a good speaker. They're not going to listen to me. And it's as if God just looks at him and says, I'm not gonna respond to that. Here's exactly what's going to happen. 
And by the way, I haven't changed my mind. I haven't changed my word. I haven't changed my plans. I haven't changed my directions. Even because you tripped over this little hardship. It wasn't that little, was it? Pharaoh said no. He increased the hardship in a murderous way against the Egyptians. Moses said, ah, this is all over. No, God told you this was going to happen. So he says it again. It's going to happen. It's, Pharaoh's going to be hardened. I'm going to harden his heart. And all of this is going to magnify me. This reiteration of what God had already said is another display that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. It's highlighted. How? Well, you see the sovereignty of God highlighted in the fact that God predicts the details of the future. If God can predict the details of the future long before they ever happen, and then it all happens according to the way he predicted it, he must be in control of all things, right? He has to be in control if he can predict the future and then make it all work out exactly as he said he was going to do it. He predicts precisely what's going to happen. That means he's in control. Another display of his sovereignty here is that God attacks Pharaoh's status. And this is really fascinating. You say, how does he attack Pharaoh's status? Look at the first verse. Yahweh said to Moses, see, I make you as God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Well, what's so significant about that? Well, Pharaoh was viewed in Egypt as a god, wasn't he? He was viewed as a god. He was viewed as one of the supreme gods over all of Egypt. In fact, one commentator said, in Egypt, the Pharaoh was the ex-officio high priest of every shrine and the chief representative of all the gods. Egypt had over 2,000 identifiable gods that they recognized. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine having to live your life trying to appease 2,000 different gods, 2,000 different divine desires? That's how they lived. But the Pharaoh was ex officio high priest of all of those. He was the highest of all, the highest representative of all 2,000 gods. But here God says to Moses, I'm going to elevate you above Pharaoh. I'm going to make you as God to Pharaoh. This is not to suggest that Moses would actually be viewed as deity, but notice what's going to happen here. If Pharaoh views himself as the highest God, God tells Moses, I'm going to make you as God, and you won't speak directly to Pharaoh. Your brother Aaron will do it because he's going to be your prophet. He creates a distance between Moses and Pharaoh as if Pharaoh isn't good enough to speak to this God. He elevates Moses above Pharaoh's own status. Verse two, you shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. You're not gonna talk to him directly. In the beginning, it's going to be Aaron will do this to make a distinction. Pharaoh actually is gonna be demoted in his so-called deity, isn't he? There's another expression of God's sovereignty played out here. Look at verse three. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. If you want an explicit display of sovereignty, here it is. God will harden Pharaoh's heart. I'll do it. Now we're gonna have more to say about this as we go along because it happens to come up a lot. But we should note here and now, God could not be more clear. He will be the one, God himself, Yahweh will be the one to harden Pharaoh's heart. Harden it so that Pharaoh, when he acts, when he makes decisions, when he seems to willingly choose what he wants to do, he does so within an enslaved will, a will that has been locked by God. It should 
be reminiscent of Romans 1. He gave them over to their own desires. He locked them in. Who does that work? God gave them over. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Friends, let's not try to liberate God from what he says of himself here. I I hear people do this all the time. Oh, God would never violate someone's will. I agree. We all willingly do what we want to do according to his will. If you don't believe that, then you think that a human will has some kind of supremacy over that of God's. You then think that God is somehow waiting to see what they will do or he's orchestrated his divine plan according to what he looked down the corridors of time to learn and find out what humans would do and then he wrote his plan out according to their sovereign will. That is not the testimony of scripture. In fact, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is mentioned 21 times in the book of Exodus. 18 times it was said to be God doing it directly or it uses a passive form, his heart was hardened. Theologians call that the divine passive, meaning his heart was hardened. He didn't harden himself. It was hardened by someone or something else and that someone or something else is understood to be God. Only three times does the text say that heart Pharaoh hardens his own heart and there's no particular order. I've I've heard people try to to save God from unfairness here by saying, well, God is just reacting to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. The problem with that is that there is no particular order and four times God or someone else hardens Pharaoh's heart before the text ever says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. So you can't just read through this in order of the chapters and the verses and come to the conclusion that God's reactionary to Pharaoh. He's not. He's sovereign over Pharaoh. He's sovereign over Pharaoh's heart. Why does he want you to see that? Why does he want Pharaoh to see that? Why does he want Israel who's looking on to see that? Even the sinful human heart is never absent from God's ultimate purposes. And I I want you to see, every time God exercises his will within the human's will, it is for a God-glorifying purpose. Again, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Why? He tells us why. That I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the lands of Egypt. Well, what does that mean? I'm going to show you my greatness and my power. I don't want him to relent here and let the people go immediately. Why? So it multiplies the signs. It multiplies the wonders. Why would God want that? To highlight his glory. To highlight his glory. In fact, Exodus 9.16 says... Indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout the earth, he tells Pharaoh. Why did he allow Pharaoh to remain? So that God's name would spread through the earth. And by the way, when you get into the book of Joshua and Judges and Israel begins to go into the land, people remember the exodus. They remember God and his power and his might and his sovereignty and they've heard about these people and this God because that's what God did in hardening Pharaoh's heart. He elevated his greatness. Exodus 14, 7. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and his army. What? How will God be honored through Pharaoh and his army? By destroying them. Their hearts are so hard, recalcitrant towards God, that they pursue the Israelites to their own destruction in the Red Sea. God is sovereign. I know that brings up questions. I know that brings up challenges. But don't worry. 
18 times it says, or 21 times it says God hardened his heart. So we're going to come back to it again. We'll let the tension grow and grow and grow. That's a sign of belief and unbelief, by the way. Is sovereignty sweet to you or terrible? There's another display of sovereignty that we see in these first seven verses, and that's that God will liberate Israel. Verse four says, when Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. And enslaved people who have no army, have no weapons, have no abilities, who are broken, as it were, in their will and even physically because of the labor that they've been under, they're going to go free from the most powerful superpower in the ancient world. How's that going to happen? God will make it happen. What does that show? He's sovereign. He does what he desires to do. He'll be in complete control. He'll work everything out according to his plan. Even when there's difficulty, even when there's opposition, even when it seems like the culture won't relent, the culture keeps pushing back, God is in complete control. There's never a moment where God is wringing his hands in heaven saying, what are they going to do next? How am I going to respond to this? What am I going to do? They keep running away from me. Friends, he's in complete control. You do remember he is coming back and his return will be highlighted and he will be glorified because there will be such opposition to the people of God. It builds up the reservoir of his wrath so intensely that when he actually liberates his people in his final return, we marvel at the coming of Jesus. We marvel at the glory of Christ when he returns. It will be so much more precious and sweet because of all the things that we have gone through when he liberates his people. That's the same idea here. Do you ever doubt the sovereignty of God? Do you ever control, question his control while the world is losing their sense? They can't reason? Just keep reminding yourself, the, the hardness of cultural hearts does not display the inability of God. Quite the contrary. No one changes the decrees of God. He has made them before the world was founded. No one changes them. Hardness, increased resentment will ultimately merely highlight the majestic sovereign nature of God. God is sovereign. And he's going to expose human hardness of heart so that when he comes in judgment, those judgments will be viewed as just. That's the first characteristic of God we learn about when he reveals his judgments. He's sovereign. Secondly, there's a second characteristic of God revealed in his judgments we find here in verses 8 through 13. God is supreme. This is different than sovereignty. Sovereignty has the right to do what he wants. He does do, but he's also elevated. He's higher than. He's bigger than, more powerful than. He's supreme. This section is where the supernatural activities of God begin, the signs and wonders as he refers to them. Or at the end of verse 5, he calls them the great judgments. There's some debate among scholars as to how many signs and wonders, how many judgments are found here. We often talk about the ten plagues and we have our children memorize the ten plagues in order because it shows biblical prowess when we do that. But there's more than 10 signs and wonders, aren't there? We'll see the serpents. That's one of the supernatural signs and wonders. Then there are the 10 plagues. But then don't forget about the Red Sea. That's pretty supernatural as well. There's at least 12 judgments from God that are listed in this passage. Yes, 10 plagues to be sure, plagues that fall on the Egyptians, the Egyptian people that break out against the people, and the word plague will be used, but don't forget, plagues are simply a subcategory of judgments. This is the judgment of God on Egypt. The temporal 
judgment of God on Egypt. But let's look at this opening sign, this opening wonder, and what it indicates about God in showing his supremacy. Look at verse 8. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, not to Pharaoh by the way, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. I just wonder, this would just irritate Pharaoh if they're both standing in front of Pharaoh and Moses just won't talk to him. He just looks at Aaron and says, let's show him something. Aaron, throw it down, do it in front of Pharaoh as if he was God and Aaron was the prophet. So it says in verse 10, Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and thus they did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his his servants and it became a serpent. Now, why would Pharaoh ask for a miracle? Why would he ask for a miracle? Because Moses is presenting himself like he's God and Aaron is a prophet. And so it's as if Pharaoh is saying, show me some divinity. I'm divine. You say you're divine. Do a miracle. What would show divinity? Miracles. That's what false gods always look for show me some divinity let's match divine wits and actions now we've seen something like this before because you remember Moses was complaining to the Lord earlier that the Israelites were not going to believe that he was actually sent from God so one of the signs that Moses did to prove to them that he was from God is he took his staff and threw it down it became a serpent then he reached down and picked it up by the tail and it became the staff again remember that Although this one is probably a bit different. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, you see that illustration in front of Israel that did help them to say, okay, well, maybe this guy has something to him. But this is different. A different word is used here for serpent than is used back in chapter 4. The word used here in our passage is also translated other places in the Bible as sea monster. Not snake. This is not a garter snake. Though that would make some in this room scream to high heaven. I know. How well I know. No, this, this is a snake as large as a sea monster. In fact, one old Jewish commentator said he believed, because it's translated this way in other places, that Moses' staff turned into a crocodile. Probably not a crocodile. The word is translated in other places in the Bible as an asp or as a cobra. This is some kind of large, massive, venomous, imposing serpent, a snake. And among all the venomous serpents in Egypt, there were several most of them were small, but the, the largest of the venomous snakes was the cobra, which is fairly significant when you're talking about Pharaoh. One commentator notes, Egyptians understandably feared snakes, both real and mythical. They had magical incantations and amulets to ward off snakes or cure a snake bite. In the mythological arena, spell 33 in the book of the dead was meant to protect the deceased from the snake of the underworld. Also, the god Seth had to fight a great serpent to protect the sun as it made its nightly voyage through the underworld. And third, the cobra also had positive connotations to the Egyptians. It was a potent religious and national symbol. Where do you see the cobra most prominently with the pharaoh? on his crown, on his crown. Another commentator speaks of this. He speaks of Apophis, the god of the darkness and chaos in Egyptian mythology was an evil serpent. Wadji was a female snake who functioned as a deity and regularly presented as as a uraeus. And the uraeus is that, that symbolic cobra on the crown and it stood for supreme power 
Only the Pharaoh wore that uraeus, that menacing cobra, as if it was poised in a position to strike. It was a sign of supreme power. So when Moses takes his staff and throws it to the ground, it becomes a massive cobra in a position as if it's ready to strike the Pharaoh. But notice verses 11 and 12. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men. Just note that word wise men is also the same word that was used in the story of Joseph when Pharaoh in Egypt called for the wise men to come interpret his dream. Wise men were philosophers and they seemed to have mystical powers and were involved with the occult. So he calls the wise men and the sorcerers, which is connected to witchcraft. And they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same thing with their secret arts. What's actually happening here? Is this some kind of Egyptian sleight of hand? Is this something really supernatural? Now the reality is we're going to encounter this same question with every one of the plagues. Is this something natural that's just kind of bigger than normal? Is this a natural phenomenon that, that happens at an at a inopportune time? What is this? Or is this supernatural? Is this demonic? Is this satanic? Well, it is known that the Egyptian magicians, they were were known as expert snake handlers. And I was reading a number of reports this week of how these Egyptian magicians could actually hold a cobra by its neck in such a way that it paralyzed it and made it stiff as a rod. And perhaps it is as they threw that rod-like cobra to the ground it awakened the snake and it came back into what looked like life from the dead it could be that but I think it's more likely that something supernatural is actually going on here the New Testament actually names these wise men do you know that in 2nd Timothy 3 verse 8 Paul describes Janus and Jambres who opposed Moses And he likens Janus and Jambres to false teachers who he will say later in chapter, or he said earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 4, were given to the doctrines of demons. Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these false teachers opposed the truth. They're men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. The text actually indicates that Janus and Jambres threw down their staffs, not their snakes. They actually had staffs in their hands, same term as what Moses had in his hand. They took their staffs, not just a paralyzed snake, and threw it on the ground, and it turned into, that's what the text says, it became a serpent. This is not sleight of hand. This is supernatural activity. You say, oh, we can't believe that. Really? You remember what Jesus said in the Gospels? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many what? Miracles? Not just sleight of hand, miracles. Matthew 24, 24, talking about the time before Christ returns, it says false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And we studied about the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. He is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. There's coming a time when we'll see such signs and wonders that could mislead, if it were possible, even the elect. And don't forget, never ever forget we have a supernatural enemy. We have a supernatural enemy. I think this is something supernatural going on here. But when you read that, don't, don't be too bothered because verse 12, you remember what happens. Each one threw down his staff and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's mega cobra swallowed up theirs. 
but it says his staff swallowed up their staff. So as to emphasize again, these were staffs. Something supernatural. What does that mean? Moses made his staff into a cobra against the guy who's wearing the cobra that shows he has supreme authority and Moses' cobra eats up the magician's two cobras? Who's supreme? I mean, it's very clear. It's very clear. Who is supreme? God is supreme. God's supremacy just ate your supremacy. It's kind of what he's saying, isn't it? And we should, we should always note, by the way, because we, we see Pharaoh's heart was hardened. You would think that he would look at that and say, okay, maybe God is bigger. Let's appease this God. Three days in the wilderness, fine. Just don't, don't make me lose the kingdom. No. You do understand, friends, that signs and wonders, miracles, supernatural activities, those are not the things that should mesmerize us when it comes to God. And yet, they're the little trickeries that often get played out in church life and religious life as if these are the things that should just absolutely attract us. No, actually the raw supremacy of God over all things is what should mesmerize us. Not miracles, not signs, not wonders. In fact, most of the time when you see signs and wonders, they don't create faith in unbelieving hearts. They solidify unbelief. And they show the justice of God when judgment comes towards hearts that saw supernatural things and would not be moved. We've seen it throughout human history. God has demonstrated his authority, his majesty, his supremacy over earthly rulers. I mean, all all the earthly rulers, they all die. God remains. Earthly rulers, sure, they conquer. And then they're eliminated. And God reigns. And I guess if you ever want to trade miracles with God, God wins. He raised Jesus from the dead to never die again. You're not going to trump that. You want a miracle? There's one. Believe that. God is here showing himself to be the supreme ruler over all Others who had been viewed as wise, powerful, in control, and in positions of supremacy. But I want you to see what does God's supremacy unveil in the response of Pharaoh. In a word, his hard heart was viewed as stubbornness. You see it in verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is what? Stubborn. It is the Hebrew word kavod, from which we actually get glory, but it, in its essence, the word kavod means heavy, weighted, thick. He's unmovable. Didn't sway him at all. He was stubborn. He's still ready to try to match supernatural wits with Yahweh. It was hardened. His heart was hardened. Verse 13, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It's passive. He did not harden his own heart. It was hardened. God could have used other means in which to do it, but don't miss this. God did it. God hardened his heart. God used this event and Pharaoh's own sinful heart to make him more recalcitrant towards the supremacy of God. He gave him over to his own heart. God did that which is precisely the response that we should expect and likely will see in a God-opposing culture, isn't it? Signs and wonders are not going to change everyone's hearts. They're typically works that just confirm their unbelief and will show the justice of God. Didn't Jesus perform many, many, many miracles? So many, it it was clear who this should have been and yet they still kill him. They reject the signs, they reject the wonders. God's judgment over Egypt's serpent gods of power and fear showed God to be supreme. And God's supremacy exposed Pharaoh's stubbornness. Every time God shows himself to be in control, we'll see it and our hearts will say, that's astounding. God is amazing. 
Let's follow him. Let's obey him. And the world will double down. Stubborn, heavy, thick. Now this supernatural activity wasn't personally costly, was it? Nobody's harmed by this, but a couple of staffs. That's it. Some pride maybe of some wise men. The next one, not so. Let's look at the third characteristic of God seen in his judgments here. Verses 14 to 25. It's the third characteristic of God seen in his judgments. God is the source of life. God is the source of life. This third section in chapter seven marks the first of what we call specifically the plagues. And it does have a negative impact on the Egyptians and on Pharaoh. But as with the serpents, it actually highlights a characteristic about God that is in contrast with the gods of Egypt. And then it exposes a response from the unbelievers. You see it in verse 15. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and station yourself there to meet him on the bank of the Nile and you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. I think there's a little humor in that. For Moses to show up with the same staff that just ate his wise men's staff like, look what I've got. Guess what's about to happen? Why, why in the morning? And why as Pharaoh was going out to the water? Well, it's likely that Pharaoh was going out to bathe himself in the Nile. Not merely for cleanliness, but probably for some kind of ritual. One commentator noted, there is no evidence that people bathed in rivers frequently in Bible times. Few ancients could swim and were therefore not as at home in or near deep water as might be the case in modern times. And bathing regularly is in general a luxury of modernity. Moses had already noted, however, that Pharaoh's daughter bathed in the Nile, chapter 2, verse 5. And members of the royal family may have bathed frequently or even daily, something their privileged lifestyle allowed them to do. Though we cannot be sure of it, the most likely meaning of as he goes out to the water is as he goes to take a bath in the water. And since Moses would make the Nile immediately odious, this plague would have, have an instant effect on Pharaoh, preventing him from doing what he was directly on his way to do before meeting up with Moses and Aaron. Another commentator said, Bathing in the Nile presumably had a ritual purpose since the Egyptian Pharaoh had many priestly duties. Probably in the morning, the ritual related in some way to Egypt's two great sustainers of life, the sun and the Nile. It was thus appropriate that Moses bringing a message of death should confront Pharaoh there. What's he doing? Well, he's, he's going out, Pharaoh's going out in the morning probably in a priestly function, bathing in the Nile, connecting his deity to the deity connected to the Nile. Because you, you do realize the Egyptians viewed the Nile as having a divine quality also. He's connecting himself to the Nile. Why? Because the Nile was viewed as the source of all life. If you took the Nile away, Egypt was nothing. It's nothing. The Nile gave life to everything and everyone. And so they associated gods with the Nile. The primary physical source is one commentator of all life in Egypt is the Nile and the vast majority of the population has always lived near it making Egypt the most densely populated country in the modern world and almost certainly also in the ancient world because you couldn't live anywhere else other than right next to the Nile. It's what gave life produced life. Also, in early, in early Egypt, the name of the Nile was vocalized as the word Hapi, which is exactly the same as the name of the Nile God. The two were virtually indistinguishable in the thinking of that era. One commentator said, Hapi was represented in Egyptian iconography as a male female deity capable thus of both fertilizing the land the male aspect and also nourishing it the female aspect 
For most of its history, Egypt was the scene of annual religious festivities making the onset of the yearly flooding of the Nile. And some religious texts praised the Nile for its provision of life for the land and its people. The Nile made Egypt the superpower that it was because it gave life. So what does God in judgment do to the Nile God? Verse 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their streams, and over their pools, and over all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood, and there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did, even as the Lord had commanded, and he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and the blood was through all the land of Egypt. This is a judgment on the Nile. If you doubt that, just go back through and underline every time you see the word Nile. It's repeated so many times so that you get the picture. This This is a judgment against the Nile God as being the source of all life. And he, he makes it into the source of what causes death. Pretty profound, isn't it? This is not some kind of natural phenomenon, by the way. I, I read a number of people trying to make it that, ah, oh, they got the heavy rains, the Nile was flooding, there's, you know, the soil is red, so it just kind of changed the color of the water into a reddish color. And because of all the heavy rains and, and overnight, it would over-oxygenate the water and the fish would all die as a result, kind of like the Alabama Crimson Tide. You've read about that? Or in Texas recently, there were rivers spewing out into some ocean areas and millions of dead fish are, are coming up on the, on the shores. Now, this isn't that. It does not say here that the Nile, its color was transformed its consistency was changed. It was blood. It's the same word for blood used all throughout the the rest of the Hebrew Bible for blood. You put your hand in it and it's now thick liquid that you can't possibly put in your mouth and be sustained by. It would kill everything in its vicinity and if it was left to endure, all life would die in that area. That's why God didn't want all life to die. He only let it last for seven days. That's what the end of the text says. In verse 25, it just lasted for seven days. Long enough to to make you realize God governs life and death. And what you look to for life, if you look to something other than him as life, you misplace your glance. He alone possesses the power to give life and he can bring death as well. Hapi, the Nile God, was conquered. God demonstrated that he's the source of all life. Notice verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. You say, well, where did they get water if all the water was turned to blood. I don't know. Could be similar to verse 24. They started digging and making wells and getting water from the earth if they could. And perhaps it was some of that water. And somehow they turned it into the same consistency as what Moses had done. But they didn't do it exactly as Moses had. Every ounce of water connected to the Nile, whether in a wood pot, a clay pot, in a reservoir, in a pool, in the Nile itself, through all the land of Egypt was turned to blood by Moses. What we get here is the sense that the Egyptian magicians could bring a cup. You would think that that would get someone's attention. But it didn't. says in verse 23, Pharaoh turned 
And he went into his house with no concern even for this. Why? Verse 22 says his heart was hardened. He didn't listen to them. He wasn't concerned about this at all. He was totally indifferent, wasn't he? There's the response to God being the author of life in contrast to others who think they find life in themselves. Indifference towards God. You ever wonder why the pro-life cause is so difficult to advance in a culture when it should be so easy? We stand for life. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Why would you pursue a culture of death? Indifference. Indifference. This is just something a little uncomfortable for me. But I'm indifferent toward that. I can move on. Still see myself greater than God and whatever he might have to say. He was even indifferent toward his own people. It says in verse 24, all the Egyptians are digging around the Nile for water to drink because they couldn't drink any of the water in the Nile. He, he was unconcerned about them whatsoever. Absolute indifference to God being the author of life. God is showing them life is in my hand, not yours. In an unbelieving response, indifference. I think it's easy to see lessons to be drawn from this. God's temporal judgments reveal his character. He's sovereign. He's supreme. He's the author of life. And you can see how people respond to that. Hardness, stubbornness, indifference. And this may have a potential to discourage the people of God as we look on our world and we see what clearly is God showing himself and people just don't get it. And things get harder for us and more difficult. I would say to you, if you're in this room today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ, the one who was dead and is now alive forever, you should see what God has shown you of who he is and don't be stubborn don't be indifferent see God and turn from your sin stop fighting against him see him for who he is he will save you from your sin I want you to think about something else here before we finish this up We do see in this passage how true belief responds to God. We just didn't highlight it, but it's repeated three times here in this text. In every section of this chapter, we see it rehearsed. When God predicted what would happen in Egypt in the first seven verses, showing his sovereignty, exposing the general hardness of Pharaoh, what did Moses and Aaron do in verse six? So Moses and Aaron did it. Exactly what God told them to do. As the Lord commanded them, thus they did. And by the way, just a a footnote here. That phrase, just as the Lord commanded them. If you were to read the rest of the Pentateuch, especially when God is giving the law and underline that phrase, you're going to find it to be one of the most significant phrases in the rest of the Pentateuch. Moses and Aaron did exactly what the Lord commanded them. When Yahweh's serpents, serpent swallowed up the Egyptian serpents, Showing God to be supreme. What did Moses and Aaron do? Verse 10. Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and thus they did just as the Lord commanded. When Yahweh's judgment on the Nile demonstrated that only he's the source of life and exposed Pharaoh's indifference, how did Moses and Aaron respond? Verse 20. So Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded. Three times it's repeated. That's true belief. That's true following. You don't know all the details. You don't know the plan. You don't know the timing. You don't know how it's all going to work out. But God reveals it and you say, I will do exactly what he says I'm going to do. That's the sign of true belief. Stubbornness and indifference to God and his word is the sign of unbelief. And his judgments show his character and his character unveils our heart. So I hope you see this. It's really clear. 
We should be reminded, friends, we are in a cosmic war. Paul said in Ephesians 6.12, we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, and world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We can't even see them, but they're operating. You live in Christ, that's how you win the battle. But we're in a cosmic war, and you see it played out in Exodus 7. And God's judgments reveal his character. And God's character confronts the unbeliever's idolatries. And the idols of unbelief reveal what's really inside of our hearts. And the heart is what ultimately is exposed when God reveals his character. When he shows you who he is, how do you respond? Obedience? Stubbornness, indifference, hardness. Let's pray together. Father, we again, we thank you for the time of fellowship in the word. We pray that it has a powerful impact in our own heart. I pray for those who are outside of Christ that you would arrest their own conscience and show them who you are. Show them The events in their life, they're not raw happenstance. These are the sovereign hand of the Almighty. And you're drawing them to show them yourself. And I pray they would see sweetness in your sovereignty, joy in your supremacy, submission to you being the author of life. I pray that we would see our circumstances and we wouldn't be led towards unbelief, but we'd be led towards greater trust. Trusting the plan, the timing, the purpose, and longing for your name to be glorified because when your name is glorified, our hearts rejoice with joy that is unspeakable, full of glory. We pray for you to have your divine effect now upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.